Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, an injunction was placed against the First Nations land reclamation camp, which resulted in a skirmish between police and the group's members. Aboriginal lawyer Aaron Detler joins us to talk about that. The second and final debate between President Donald Trump and Democratic challenger Joe Biden was a downright civil affair, compared to the last one anyway. We'll give you a recap on that. And a CBC report says 85% of long-term care homes in Ontario are breaking the law without facing any consequences. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly's podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Things overflowed yesterday uh, in Caledonia with the announcement that uh, the judge who had put an injunction in there is now making it uh, not temporary but permanent. And there was reaction from those that are occupying some of the lands. And as we now know, there was a confrontation between Ontario Provincial Police and uh, some of the people that were there. Fires were set. Uh, we're told tasers were used. I'm not sure of all the details at this stage, but it's a, a messy situation, sadly, once again. Six Nations spokesman Skylar Williams tells the One Dish, One Mike Indigenous podcast there are hundreds of people at the blockade this morning. And so now we got a massive line of OPP standing over here and uh, a couple of hundred uh, Six Nations community members standing on this side. And so this is just a, the same shit over and over and over again. And so every time we keep on saying this, is a peaceful occupation of our territory and uh opp want to push and push and push uh courts want to keep on pushing well to uh, get some perspective on this please to welcome back to the program aaron detler who is a lawyer specializing in first nations law uh mr detler it's great to have you back in the program sadly i wish it were under better circumstances good morning mr kelly hope you're doing well and staying safe we are thank you very much as as we are for you as well uh aaron how did we get this far again uh, do you want to go back 400 years, or do you want to go back two weeks? <laughs> yeah. no, two weeks is the abridged version. How we do that? Um, well, unfortunately, we've got a justice system that really isn't equipped at this point to deal with Indigenous rights. And, and, and to get right down to it, um, we've got a, a judge in Hamilton who is applying a law that he um, basically sees as appropriate, but that legal framework that he's applying is something in the range of 50 to 100 years old. And, he, and unfortunately, the legal system uh, hasn't um, taken the time to consider what are uh, often uh, collective rights, and they're pursuing it like, against individuals. So that's really the big problem right now. The justice system seems completely incapable of addressing collective rights of the Haudenosaunee in this instance. Okay, uh, this sounds like deja vu all over again. I think you and I had this very same discussion a few years ago about a, a Caledonia housing development, and uh, the same problem was was rearing its ugly head then. Uh, it was it wasn't resolved then. Is this just an extension of that? It it, it really is, and I put the the blame for this squarely at the feet of the crown. And you can pick which crown you want. You can pick the provincial crown, or you can pick the federal crown. But in the context of all these legal proceedings, they haven't shown up. Um, they haven't sat down at the table. Um, you know, the, uh, the federal government walked away from the Caledonia negotiations, uh, which were ongoing about um, six, seven years ago, and they never bothered to come back. So it's completely predictable, quite frankly, uh, that this type of thing would occur, where the, the federal and provincial government seem to absolve themselves of any responsibility to resolve the underlying land issue. How do you deal with something like that? And I, I know people are going to get angry, and, and there's going to be some polarization on both sides of this. But your, your point is well taken here. We saw this happen, of course, uh, years ago with the Douglas Creek situation, uh, where they tossed around responsibility between the feds and the province like a hot potato. No, it's their fault. No, it's their fault. I'll deal with them. Uh, uh, yeah. 
it's it, it's they're on the same team for God's sakes. I mean, somebody's got to step up here. Well, this goes right back to the uh, the Ipperwash report, and you may recall that uh, after the shooting at Dudley George, there was you know millions of dollars spent on an inquiry, and the inquiry came up with recommendations, and the recommendations were that there be a treaty commission set up, and that the province of Ontario take the lead on setting up that treaty commission. First Nations Ontario would uh, participate at the time in appointing members to this commission, and they would invite the prov- uh, the feds to come along, and if the feds deemed it um, deemed it appropriate, they could participate. So the model is there. It's just a lack of political will, quite frankly. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, someone's going to be held to account. And, it, you know, it's my very significant fear that someone's going to get held to account after someone's killed. How frustrating is it for you and, 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 and not just for these people, but right across the country? Government after government uh, makes promises and throne speeches and, and you know, during election campaigns about how they're going to address a lot of these problems. Uh, and we don't seem to ever move the yardsticks very far, if at all. It, it's extremely frustrating. And I'm not necessarily condoning violence. Uh, I, I'm, I understand why people get frustrated. Um, but really, in the context of what hasn't happened, you know, it's, com- it's completely reasonable that the steps that um, Schuyler and others are taking. Like, when you look at it from their perspective, and, and uh, you know, the judge said something interesting in his ruling. He said, you can go to court or you can um, sit down and negotiate with the government. Well, the court takes 25, 30 years going on and nothing's been resolved. And there's n- nobody to sit down at the table with. So, um, you know, quite frankly, his honor was living in a bit of a fantasy world when he made those recommendations with respect to resolving land issues. Um, and at the same time, um, you've got a, a group of people who are waiting. This is like, I think we're on the third generation now, Bill, mm-hmm. um, just between me, you and the gay post. Like we've got kids who weren't even born in Caledonia who are now participating in these new, um, these new land uh, reclamations. Have you talked with Skylar Williams yet? Uh, yeah, I have. I've, I've spoken with him. Uh, he's in reasonably good spirits. He's, he's significantly <laughs> disturbed about the police use uh, firing on them. So that's been one of the big issues right now is the the, uh, the police um, uh, are firing something called taser bullets at them. So no one's ex- no one's excited about that process. But you know, I I think that his perspective is there's got to be a way to resolve the issue which recognizes that. The current system is broken, and the granting of injunctions is simply not going to solve the problem. Now, I'm, I'm just going to go on the reporting that I've had, and I had a talk with uh, Mayor Hewitt, of course, uh, uh, some weeks ago when this whole thing came to a head. I thought it came to a head then. Obviously, it's 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 exacerbated itself since then. But they were under under the understanding with this particular development uh, that they had gone through all the the hoops they were supposed to, and they talked to all the right people, and they got the okay, that, or so they thought, anyway. Uh, which is why they were moving ahead with this. Which and, and they expressed shock actually that all of a sudden uh, Skyler and others decided to to make this a, a place where they were going to take a stand on this. Uh, which raises the question, I guess, Aaron, that you and I talked about years ago with Douglas Creek again too. Uh, is there one body, one group that speaks for the, for the Six Nations and for Indigenous peoples here, or do you? Uh, I, I don't know if people even know where to make the phone call or who to go and talk to here. I understand. I understand where you're coming from, Bill, and I understand. Um, to a certain extent where um, the Canadian public is coming from because it seems a bit confusing when they look at Six Nations and, and who, do, who does what um, and who has what roles and responsibilities. But I think uh, Mayor Hewitt was completely offside in his comment. And I think the developers completely offside. You know, They knew that they needed to talk to the Haudenosaunee Confederacy Chiefs Council, and yet they didn't do it. 
Um, it's simply implausible, uh, bordering on, I'm not going to use that word, uh, but in my opinion, it, it's ridiculous for Mayor Hewitt to come out and say, listen, we talked to all the right people, but we didn't talk to the Confederacy, when he knew that the Confederacy was sitting down to talk to the federal and provincial governments for six years in Caledonia. Mayor Hewitt knew that it was the Confederacy who got the people to come back off the roads. Mayor Hewitt knew it was the Confederacy that was taking the lead in the negotiations with Canada and Ontario. And yet everyone holds up their hands and plays dumb, deaf, and blind six years later when the same thing happens again. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. It, it's strange credulity. So where is the, where is the Confederation now? Uh, the Confederacy is sitting there waiting, waiting to engage with the federal and provincial government. Um, you know, they've sent letters off to, um, uh, I think it's Minister Miller, um, and they haven't had any positive response from the federal government, and they certainly haven't had any positive response from the provincial government to sit down and reach a negotiated settlement. There, there are opportunities to negotiate our way out of this. Um, you, it, it just, it just, know, we're, it, we're sitting here waiting to talk, and, and um, you know what? I get calls from you. I think I get calls from you more than I get calls from the federal government. <laughs> That's that, which is every six years. Okay, I get that. Uh, the, the, I love message. talking to you, Bill, but I would rather be sitting at a table. I know. I, I don't. I don't get. I, I don't disagree in situations like that. Uh, you mentioned. I want because the, the Douglas Creek thing is 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 prologue to this, and it's important, I guess, because as you mentioned, the federal government eventually, after a long time, just said, "Okay, we're not going to talk anymore," and off they went. Uh, and, and I think somebody made some comment that, "Look, if this was resolved two hundred years ago, I don't know what you guys are even talking about." Uh, you've got to get, as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation here and you've got to go all the way back to the beginning and i don't get the sense that either the feds or the province want to do that no they don't they, they really just want to keep putting like the, when the when the kettle boils over all they really want to do is um put a lid on it and hold it down as tight as possible until it dissipates and we know that doesn't work because we, we're going to wait another 10 years until this happens again um the fundamental underlying issue here is land you know the six nations started out with one million acres of land when they decided to ally themselves with the crown and to help the crown through a few difficult spots and a couple of wars, they said, okay, listen, we're going to give you a million acres of land up and down the Grand River. That million acres of land through fraud, deceit, theft, and chicanery has been reduced to something in the range of 45,000 acres. That's, that's the issue here. So we've got the city of Hamilton that's expanding. We've got Haldeman County that's expanding. You've got all these different municipal entities expanding and growing. Uh, we know that a lot of this growth is coming out of Toronto and the Green Plan and, and how, how development is proceeding. But where do Six Nations grow? How much longer do the people of Six Nations have to wait before they can grow? And right now, you know, they've been waiting 400 years. They've lost something in the range of a, a close to a million acres of land. And all they want is a program on how can they get land back. If somebody walked up to Schuyler and said, hey, listen, I'm going to give you a thousand acres of land to compensate for this development. He, maybe he would listen. I don't know. I can't speak for him. But those, those kind of options aren't being put on the table. They keep trying to throw money at, this, at the situation, and money's not going to solve it. It's, it's a question about land. Are they, uh, is, is the Confederacy even at the table when these negotiations take place? Um, and I, I'm talking, about, place, be, I'm yes. talking about, be, about between municipalities. No. And, and that's part of the issue right now. The municipalities think, hey, we did everything we're supposed to do. And under Canadian law, they frankly, they did because the municipality isn't the crown. The municipality can't discharge the owner of the crown. That's got to be the province. The company can't discharge the owner of the crown. So the company says we did everything we did, we needed to do. The municipality says we did everything we needed to do. And then we, we turn around and the Haudenosaunee say, well, that's, that's fine and dandy, but nobody's discharged the owner of the crown. And that's what makes uh, Justice Harper's 
decision so problematic. For instance, I'm 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 holding a shoney. I don't know how much time you got, Bill, but I'm holding a shoney. Oh, go ahead, sure. And I have a treaty right to do any number of things in Haldeman County. What Justice Harper has now said, um, by way of a permanent injunction, is he's he's extinguishing my treaty rights. So now we're in a situation where um, they can't get an extinguishment politically. They can't get an extinguishment lawfully through negotiation. So they've resorted to judicial extinguishment, and that's why you're seeing such. Uh, an outpouring of opposition because we've got a judiciary now who thinks it's reasonable to extinguish treaty rights. Um, and, you know, that's, as, as you're aware, and as you, I think people are witnessing this morning, that's not going to be well received. What are the next steps here? I, you, know, you mentioned that there's, the, I guess, the possibility of an appeal here. Uh, those take money. It takes money. It takes time for something like that. I don't know that, uh, that we have a whole lot of either of those at this stage. I think there's going to be an appeal, um, and the appeal is going to move forward through legal proceedings. But, you know, as a lawyer, um, uh, I'm remiss in saying this, but I don't think this is going to get resolved in the courts. This, this is not the type of issue that the Canadian legal system is equipped to deal with, primarily because a lot of the Haudenosaunee don't consider themselves to be Canadian, for instance. Um, but really, this the next step should be a sit-down. How do we sit down and bring the temperature down and set up some kind of process to talk about these issues before it gets to this? Uh, at the risk of, uh, of echoing uh, the guy in the White House, I, you you know, Aaron, there are people that characterize Skyler and others that are doing this right now as just a bunch of radicals. Yeah. How do you how do you respond to that? Well, they've been they've been well trained by the Canadian Crown to be radical. Um, you know, this didn't happen to Skyler and others by coincidence. They didn't wake up one day and say, "Hey, I want to I want to I want to struggle, and I want to fight for the rights of my people." Um, you know. <laughs> He may be a radical, but it's it's completely understandable why he's radical. I he's understand the context. I'm asking that. Okay, yeah. Nelson Mandela yeah, no, was a Nelson Mandela was a radical. Right. Martin Luther King was a radical. I mean, it, yeah. it, it's it's for some in some people's minds taken on a negative connotation, uh, which is not really fair. I think that he's doing what he believes is right, and he and you know, from my perspective, I completely understand why he's doing it, and. I think to a certain extent, he's completely justified in trying to defend land. You know, and I go back to, to this again. Um, there was a million acres there for the use of the Haudenosaunee. Basically, it was stolen. Let's not kid ourselves. Land was stolen. They got 45,000 acres left. And he's got nowhere for his kids to grow up and live. And he looks across the road and he sees a housing development of 14,000 houses. And, and everybody tells him that that's okay. And this has been going on for 30, 40, 50, 100 years. I don't think that's radical. I think it's reasonable. The uh, wait list, I believe, for affordable housing in Six Nations right now is in the neighborhood of 9 to 12 years. Uh, the last time I checked, it's about double what it is in a city like Hamilton. Exactly. So, And, you know, it's difficult to tell somebody, especially somebody who's got children, listen, you just wait a little bit longer when historically you look back and say, hey, like, you know, I made a bit of a quip and a joke about 400 years, but it has been 400 years. We've been waiting to... And in the context of this thing, it's been 1785. So, um, Aaron, the longer this thing drags on, invariably history has shown us the worse that it gets. I mean, even the the Douglas Creek thing, which was initially isolated in the Caledonia area, uh, the Grand River is a big river, and it goes a long way around the, through the province here. And and there were other, uh, shall we say, sympathetic uh, demonstrations uh, in various other parts along the Grand as well. Uh, it's, would it behoove the government to get this thing fixed sooner than later before we see a repeat of that? 
it's only going to get worse in terms of the disruption to people's lives. So why not sit down and fix it? I think I think your comments are are um, uh, are clear-headed. You should run for office, Bill. Been there, done that. And I didn't even get the T-shirt, so no, I'm not going there again. But <laughs> Do they give you a cup of coffee while you're there? Pretty much, yeah, But uh, which I had to – it was a taxable benefit. But anyway, uh, I, I'm just worried about what might happen because it did, as you remember from Douglas Creek and some of the, the related incidents, it, it got ugly. People got hurt in many cases. Uh, there was a great deal of property damage, as we're starting to see here. Uh, and and I'm concerned that that anybody and everybody that can get involved in this. I mean, you know, when the, it seems to me as if because of some of the pushback that uh, that the OPP got because of how they handled the Douglas Creek situation, they seem to be a lot more, uh, shall we say, proactive than they were the last time. Um, and and that really kind of turns the temperature up, doesn't it? It does. And the, the OPP is they've they've learned from their mistakes and they're being a bit more strategic, but they're not really doing anything fundamentally different. Um, what they're trying to do is the classic, you know, pick people off instead of trying to, they know they can't march in there and uh, grab people and take them on force because they'll be met with a, uh, an equal or um, a greater force from six nations. So they're just doing, they're basically sniping people off from the sides. Um, and and I, I'm not using that metaphor necessarily um, figuratively. What, what the, the issue though, is that policing is not going to solve this issue. Um, you know, and what we've seen happen in the context of what the Mohawks and Tyne and Ega did with the CN rail line, Canada is particularly vulnerable to disruption based on size to from Indigenous people. And, and we're seeing it out west, we're seeing it out east. We've got um, all kinds of systemic racism that's that's been um, identified by Indigenous people, and they're just looking for a real good way to sit down and talk about resolving it. It doesn't have to get there, but... Once you start, once the OPP starts shooting people to enforce court orders, um, you know things get out of control quickly. Well, uh, we'll see how this develops over the next little while. Of course, the concern I've got uh, among many here is that uh, once there's a permanent injunction like that, uh, it leaves the door open to enforcing that injunction, and uh, I don't know that, that that's going to resolve anything. As a matter of fact, it's probably just going to be throwing gasoline onto a fire. Uh, hopefully, we'll talk about this next week and talk about the resolution that they came up with. I, we, we can only hope at this stage, Aaron. Uh, I'd be happy is, to report that to you, and I'd be happy to bring you into the discussions if, at any time if you want to have a chat. We sure will. Thanks again for the time today, Aaron. Stay well. Thank you. Take care. Stay safe. Aaron Detler, of course, lawyer who specializes in First Nations law, who is uh, intimately involved in uh, the discussions that are going on in Caledonia right now, as he was with the Douglas Creek incident some years ago, too. Uh, and I, I concur with what he's saying. It's, this is not a policing issue. This is political. And... Uh, it, it would, it's, it's, and I don't mean necessarily the town of Caledonia. We're talking, or Haldeman County for that matter. We're talking about the federal and provincial governments. And he's absolutely right uh, that we've seen this pop up in different places all across the country uh, because they want some action. And uh, I can understand the frustration. Don't condone violence. Don't condone burning things. But I can understand the frustration. And uh, it's up to them, the feds in the province, to do something about this, not just in Caledonia, but just about everywhere. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Second and final debate uh, between uh, Donald Trump and uh, Joe Biden took place yesterday in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, it was a, a, a more sedate affair than the first one, I guess, is maybe the best way to do it. And they actually got around from time to time anyway about talking about policy. But as Andy Field reports, the debate also featured accusations of each candidate taking foreign money and, of course, corruption. President Trump claiming without evidence that former Vice President Biden illegally took money from other nations. Joe got $3.5 million from Russia, 
and it came through Putin. Candidate Biden denying the charges. I have not taken a single penny from any country whatsoever. And foreign countries are paying you a lot. Russia's paying you a lot. China's paying you a lot. Unlike other presidents, President Trump did not put his assets in a blind trust when he took office. Andy Field, ABC News. To uh, give us some perspective on this, please to welcome back to the program Jacob Nyheisel, who is the Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Buffalo College of Arts and Sciences. Professor, thank you so much for the time. Uh, good to have you with us this morning. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the program. On the day after, uh, what was your assessment of what you saw last night? Uh, watchable, <laughs> which is a far cry from uh, the first one, which uh, I, I honestly think I buried my head. I quite literally did. So it was uh, better, but we're still a really long way from the norms that were there in 2000 when everyone got riled up to Al Gore sighing on stage. So it's, um, I think, emblematic of how far we've come. Yeah, I think uh, I think civilities uh, still a couple of bypasses up the road here. We're not there yet, but I mean, at least it was, as you say, it was listenable. Uh, I thought Kristen Welker did a pretty good job of keeping everybody in line, too. Yes, absolutely. So I, I think the the major winner here was the moderator, <laughs> who comes away with the best marks. Jacob, what had to happen last night? I mean, by all convention, the polls that we saw. Before that, uh, Biden had a substantial lead nationally, uh, and, and if, if not a lead, very close in a lot of the, the key states that are going on here. Uh, so Donald Trump is was, anyway, before last night, uh, the, the, he was the trailer. He was the guy that was the, the underdog in this situation like that. Did he do enough to change the needle? I really don't think so. I mean, debates traditionally don't move the needle very much, I and mean, we can all point to the ones that uh, we're pretty sure did. I think the... The most recent example would have been the the first Obama Romney debate in 2012. Yeah. Uh, even Democrats were a little upset by that performance by the president. So it's not impossible for it to happen, but you really do need a, you know, a major expectation violation or a you know fall down on the job kind of moment in order for one candidate to really run away with it and change the needle. Uh, there were come up moments as I, I was sitting there taking notes on this last night, and uh, I, I know when uh, Kristen Welker asked about China in particular, uh, that very quickly devolved into Hunter Biden and the, and the corruption story, as opposed to actually what Donald Trump would do with China. Uh, the, the, when that kind of goes and they go off on a tangent like that, did, I, I know that plays to the base. I get that, but is it doing anything to 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 try to attract those suburban housewives that uh, that Mr. Trump keeps talking about? <laughs> It's really not. I mean, that, that's part of Trump's broader problem is that almost nothing that he said last night was about what he would do. There's no sort of prospective analysis of a, what a second Trump term looks like. It was always pivots toward things that are you know, pretty clearly red meat for the, the base. And so, you know, I, I, a local analyst here talked about this as being part of a strategy. I'm not convinced that that's true, but it makes some sense to me that, you know, Trump may be trying to just really, really ensure that his motivated base is still motivated come election day and that he expands the playing field not by moving into additional demographics, you know, suburban housewives, for instance, but by bringing out people who are traditional non-voters who look an awful lot like voters who vote for Trump. And he knows how to play to that base. I mean, those are the people... Well, from Lindsey Graham right on down to the people that wear the MAGA hats at his rallies, that they don't need proof. If he says it, they believe it. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I hasten to talk about it as, as a kind of cult of personality, um, in large part because you know no political side is immune from the same kinds of impulses, but 
It certainly is a, a um, you know, you, you make your assessment of the person saying it, and then you determine what is being said after the fact, and the veracity follows from who's saying it, not what's being said. Uh, two moments that j- jumped out at me, uh, and, and they were interrelated. Uh, one was Trump's assertion, of course, that he was the, the least racist person in the room last night. Uh, that was an eye-rolling moment, I'm sure, for an awful lot of people. I, I got the sense Biden was trying to hold back on that. But the other was a, que- a question. One of the questions Kristen Welker posed to them and it was, how, what do you say to those parents? Talk to those parents that have to have that conversation with their kids about if you're going out, you know, no, don't wear a hoodie, don't do this, keep your hands on the wheel if you get stopped. Uh, you know, should people of color are having to make that. So talk to them, and what would you say? And Trump avoided that question altogether. Biden attempted to go after it, and I think he made some points on it. But uh, again, the the evasive answers, I think, have got to be very frustrating for people. I, yeah, I think so. That uh, it's not clear what. What else we could expect? Uh, you know, a head-on answer for that question, I think, would be deeply unsatisfactory. So he probably made the calculation, to the extent that he's making calculations about these things at all, that, you know, a pivot or avoiding it altogether was preferable to, to being caught in a question that might make him, uh, might put him in a difficult place. We heard that uh, Joe Biden took a couple of days to prepare for this, uh, seemed to have his notes and seemed to have some, some things about policy that he wanted to talk about. Uh, there was a certain incoherence to a lot of the stuff that Trump was doing, and, and to a certain extent, Biden, too. They stumbled uh, a lot of incomplete sentences, but it seemed to me as if Trump had two or three talking points written down there, and it just kept going back to those, notwithstanding what the question was. Yeah, I think that's you know, kind of classic Trump at this point. He, he does tend to hammer on the, the same things over and over again, and there's, there is some utility to that in politics in the sense that people do have mm-hmm. short memories and that they need to be reminded frequently. Uh, that being said, I'm not sure that's what was going on. I just think that that's his style, and that's uh, how he knows how to engage. Jacob, it looks like he's uh, replaying the 2016 playbook here. Uh, obviously, the lock them up stuff. I mean, it was Hillary last time. It's it's the Biden family he wants locked up now, uh, at least according to what he said to the crowd at a rally just before the uh, the debate. Uh, and and a, a similar move too. The uh, the so-called new information about Hunter Biden, the laptop and the money from Russia, et cetera, et cetera. Again, unsubstantiated. And, and as a matter of fact, an article in the Wall Street Journal says the whole thing is bunk. It's it's, it's totally fabricated. Uh, yet he keeps going back to that sort of thing, too. It worked for him in 2016, the locker up with Hillary. It, 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 it certainly motivated his supporters. Is it going to work again? I, I have my doubts. I mean, I think that that well has run pretty dry. Uh, in the sense that, you know, I think what made it effective in 2016 was that it had this sort of quasi-official veneer and that there were lifelong civil servants whose reputation was, at least at that point, fairly unimpeachable, raising questions kind of at the 11th hour uh, about uh, the Hillary email situation, so the, the Comey announcement, which yeah, I, I don't think that was the only thing going on. The polls were starting to move prior to that, and independents were, or rather undecided were starting to break for Trump, but it certainly didn't help, and that sort of quasi-official veneer through the process allowed him to make those statements, uh, whereas now, uh, not even, you know, you know, journalists of the New York Post don't want to touch this thing, you know, the outlet that broke it, and so I think that's a very telling indicator of the, the, the weight behind the claims. Professor Jacob Neigheisel, as always, Professor, great to get your perspective on this. Thank you so much for the time today. My pleasure.
Take care. Uh, mixed reaction, uh, depending on which newspaper you read, I guess, and which commentators you listen to uh, the day after the big debate. Uh, to that point, we're uh, pleased to welcome to the program Eric Schnur, who is an adjunct professor and lecturer at the School of Communications at American University and former speechwriter for uh, former Vice President Al Gore. Professor, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's tough when you're losing an election and behind, but it's even tougher sometimes when you're the front runner and trying to stay there. Uh, how did Joe Biden perform vis-a-vis -vis trying to stay on top and trying to keep the, the people with, and, and maybe gravitate towards some of those, uh, those voters who have not yet made up their mind? Uh, well, some might argue with the premise that there are a lot of voters who have yet to make up their mind. Um, but, I, you know, to the, to the question, I think he performed pretty well. Um, you know, he, with Joe Biden, it's a bit of, it's a, bit of a known quantity. Uh, he's going to come across as empathetic, which he did. Uh, he's going to uh, speak to his experience, which he did. Uh, and again, to your again to your point, if you're ahead, the f strategy or approach, if you will, going in is do no harm. Mm -hmm. And you know, watching last night and then looking again this morning at the transcript, uh, you know, there were no gaffes as uh, the vice, former vice president is has made in the past. So I, I actually think he did pretty well with that approach of do no harm. I don't think anyone who uh, is in, who, if they haven't already voted or made their decision, but were inclined to vote for him, there was nothing from last night that would uh, change that opinion or that mind. Um, so I think he did pretty well. It was, uh, you know, all these things are always relative, right? So there are those who will say Joe Biden, this was his best debate yet, and then there are others who will measure it against. Donald Trump, who couldn't go much lower than the first debate. So by contrast, did Biden come across as such a clear winner as he did in the first time? No. But again, uh, if, you're, uh, if you agree to this approach of do no harm if you're the leader uh, in a race, uh, I thought he had a pretty good night. Yeah, I think one of the observers last night was using the football metaphor. You know, in the fourth quarter, no fumbles, no interceptions. Uh, you know, just ball control. That's what it comes down to. Uh, and, and Prevent defense. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, Biden seems much more comfortable talking policy as opposed to personal attacks. And he seemed to be in his element last night. Yeah, I think so. Um, you, know, I, you know, a couple of really good examples of that. One is health care. Yeah. So, you know, President Trump said, we're going to have a big, beautiful health care system uh, without going into any detail what that might look like, what that entails, what specifics uh, would help get there. Uh, and clearly that's, you know, territory that Vice President Biden's much more comfortable sharing some of those, some of those details. And I think that's an important distinction in debates. In a stump speech, when you're in a rally uh, speaking to what, you know, what in the business sometimes we'll call friendlies. People want to know you have a plan. They don't necessarily need to hear the specifics. In a debate environment, you need to, you need to share with people more than just the plan. They want to know what's in that plan, how you're going to implement it, uh, what is the outcome going to be. Uh, you know, so I think, um, again, to your, uh, in that regard, uh, the Vice, Vice President Biden was on much solid uh, and firm ground uh, playing to his strengths.
it seems oftentimes that notwithstanding the fact that there are you know a multitude of issues in any election uh that the one that the biden camp wants to focus on right now is covid we saw that in the first debate uh, kamala harris certainly made it to i think the the linchpin of her discussions with mike pence uh they're coming to get you if you have a pre-existing condition that's a takeaway line that you don't forget it anytime soon uh and, sure. and 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 biden seemed to keep wanting to come back to that too is that is that seems to be the ship they think they're going to sail all the way to the white house in this i mean is it the number one issue with with the voters these days uh, if it's not number one, it's really, really close. You know, uh, hundreds of thousands have lost their lives, uh, as was the context for the first question last night was when Kristen Welker said 16,000 people died, not from the disease, but since the last time these two men met on stage, which was only two weeks ago. Um, you know, so you know, there are certainly, uh, again, if it's not number one, it is... Uh, it's way up there, and I certainly understand why that would be the Biden team strategy because, you know, if you watch these debates and if you're a junkie like I am, you know, it always seems that uh, Vice President Biden needs a little time to warm up. But when the issue is COVID, it almost doesn't matter because there's nothing the president can say that can justify uh, the pain <laughs> uh, that the country's going through. And, and, and again, you know, one of the, I think one of the big takeaways uh, from last night was that President Trump still doesn't really have a, a clear um, plan, uh, or maybe better put, there's no course correction is probably a better way to put mm. that. Yeah, Maybe he does have a plan, but does the plan change in any way what we see now? And it doesn't. Well, one of the 10-second sound bites I'm sure you're going to hear a lot on the newscast this morning is uh, uh, Mr. Donald Trump suggesting that we're, we're, we're learning to live with COVID. And, and Biden jumped right in and said, we're dying from COVID. We're not learning to live yeah, with that, that that was some moment. And then, you know, and there's a fine line when you're running for an office like presidency or when you're going into a debate uh, because people tend to gravitate towards the optimistic and hopeful. But at a moment like this, people also want realistic. And there is a stark contrast between these two gentlemen and the, uh, and the course they want to take and how seriously they take this as a threat. Um, so, you know, that, you know, a lot of times, some, you know, these one-liners, these zingers uh, that, you know, going to the point, uh, the quote you shared from Kamala Harris, that people remember for days, even years after a debate, that might be one just because it was so stark and so honest and so brutal and such an indictment of the Trump approach to the coronavirus. Professor, i got about a minute left, but I wanted to get your read on uh, the Obama factor here. Uh, he, he made his first full speech, of course, earlier this week in Philadelphia. Uh, and, and very hard-hitting, I thought, a very driving speech. Uh, he's going to continue on the road again. Uh, is, is that the guy that you want to go to the finish line with over the last 10 days of this thing? I think so. Uh, you know, he was a, a very popular president. Um, you know, uh, Donald Trump did not beat Barack Obama. He beat Hillary Clinton. Uh, Obama was wildly popular, still is, and with many different groups, many groups that are critical for, uh, for to get out the Democratic vote. Uh, and he also, you know, Donald Trump says, make America great again. And a lot of people who are gravitating towards Joe Biden want to make America normal or make America decent again. And they see 
in Barack Obama, not just a president that they admired, but someone who is also decent and graceful and elegant. Um, you know, so I, you know, I think to whatever extent the Biden campaign uh, can use Barack Obama, uh, it's to their advantage. Going to be very interesting. Ten or eleven days coming up, uh, Professor. We really do appreciate your time on a busy morning. Thanks so much for this today. Oh, I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. As did I. Thank you, uh, Professor Eric Schnur from uh, the American University, former speechwriter for uh, former Vice President Al Gore. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, an issue that we should all be concerned about: uh, our loved ones, of course, uh, many of them in long-term care facilities right across the province. Uh, it was the focus of an awful lot of consternation and, and I think, attention uh, in the first wave of COVID because we saw, first of all, the high number of people that were impacted by COVID, the number of people who died. And we got a pretty ugly picture of the way things were going in long-term care facilities. They were understaffed, uh, overpopulated oftentimes. Uh, the conditions even in which uh, the, the residents were living uh, were questionable. The premier at that time appeared on our show and said that he was committed to doing something about it. And yesterday, or later this week, I'm sorry, earlier this week, I'm sorry, uh, during a Q&A session, during one of his daily sessions, he was asked the question again about long-term care and made this commitment. As sure as I'm standing here, there will be justice against the bad actors in long-term care. And there wasn't, a, keep in mind, there's, I think there's 626 homes, and they weren't all. I can't paint a broad brush, and I will not stand here and protect these big companies that acted recklessly and carelessly. There will be justice for the families that have lost loved ones. Well, let's put that in perspective. Uh, first of all, there's a piece of legislation uh, that the government is introducing right now that would make it difficult for families that feel as if the care had been problematic to actually take legal action. That's one thing, Mr. Premier. The other is a report that came out, uh, an investigative report done by CBC. 85% of Ontario nursing homes break the law repeatedly with almost no consequences, according to the report that was done by CBC. There are some horrific stories here. Uh, one about uh, somebody who took the, their their mother to a long-term care facility in Scarborough. Uh, instead of loving care, she was met with physical and emotional abuse at the hands of at least four different care workers caught on camera that they had hidden in the room. Uh, and on and on it goes. Now, apparently the family didn't know that sort of thing went on at that facility, but the government did because there had been previous complaints and nothing was done about it. Joining us to talk about this is a Jane Maidis, who, of course, is a barrister and solicitor, institutional advocate and advocacy center for the elderly. Uh, Jane, great to have you back in the program today. Uh, I'm glad you had some time to give us some perspective on this report. This is this is scary stuff. It is scary stuff, and it's you know what we've been you know fighting against for a very long time. Um, COVID only made it worse, but you know certainly we knew that there were major problems in long-term care prior to. Uh, COVID, and, you know, while the government says it will do everything, it really isn't. Uh, just by the numbers, because the Premier just mentioned in the clip I played before you joined us here, there's 632 homes in Ontario. 538 of them, or 85%, are repeat offenders to this. So this this is not an isolated situation here. No, it's not an isolated um, incident in any way. Um, you know, and, you know, this it, it's hard to know what the actual situation is, given that the uh, government stopped doing the annual inspections a while ago, so we're not even getting a true picture of you know kind of what is going on on a day-to-day -day basis in a lot of these homes. So a lot of those complaints are 
are reactive where you know the the ministry only comes in if the either the home reports or if someone makes a complaint so right now we're not even getting you know those kind of inspections where they would come in and maybe be proactive where they would see something but no harm has happened uh, to prevent these things from happening isn't it time we took this to the next level though if, if this is abuse i mean that's assault in some cases, and I don't want to paint everybody with the same brush, to use the Premier's phrase, but when it's happening with this much frequency, uh, why aren't we entertaining the... Uh, this is one thing to have an inspector. It's another thing to do a police investigation into mm -hmm. some of this. Has anybody ever been charged with anything here? There's, uh, there, so there's two sort of streams of charging that can happen. Certainly there's never been a criminal um, charges laid against a long-term care home that um, I'm, I'm aware of. I'm sure there hasn't been. Um, but there's also provincial offenses um, under the Long-Term Care Homes Act. So if they don't comply with the legislation, it says that they're, you know, can be found guilty under the Provincial Offenses Act, and they do, and the ministry doesn't even lay those charges or have police lay those charges. But that doesn't seem to be happening with much frequency. Why? Why Never. the disconnect here? They're <laughs> yeah. talking the talk, Jane. They're talking the talk, but they're not doing much about it. Absolutely. And that's the problem is that the, you know, the inspection process when it was put in in 2010 was, you know, touted as being this great process. But unfortunately, um, it hasn't worked out that way because there's no teeth to it. Um, you know, they they don't want to close homes down for obvious reasons because we have nowhere to put people and there's long waiting lists. The homes can continue to, you know, fill their beds and, um you know, there's been no offense, you know, offense, provincial offenses, been no criminal charges, even in cases where there's been pretty egregious stuff happening. Uh, the Ontario Ministry of Long-Term Care's inspection report from September of uh, last year, of 2019, uh, and they outlined some of the abuses that CBC has uh, put into this report here. Uh, they cite a lack of staff training on abuse policies mm -hmm. as one of the main reasons for that. Uh, now, and the go I know they did a follow-up on that four months later and found out that... Uh, revealed 9.2% of actively working staff had still not completed the mandatory training. Six months later, another incident of the staff to a resident abuse was documented in yet another report. Is, is it just training? Is that what we're looking at here? Well, I think it's a bunch of things. I mean, certainly there are issues around training and reporting of abuse to the ministry. Um, but I think that part of the problem is, you know, is definitely staffing. Uh, we don't um, have enough PSWs. We're in a huge shortage now. We were in bad case before the pandemic. We're in a much worse con worse space now. So we don't have the staffing. Um, you know, anybody who is a PSW can pretty much get a job, whether they're suited to it or not, um, because they need, you know, people to fill these, these jobs. And there's really, you know, no consequences. I mean, you know, we do get occasional, I think in that case, that there was some charges laid against the PSW. But frankly, when they're, you know, having to work so quickly and moving along, they get frustrated, they get upset. Um, the, the residents are trying to, you know, feed residents too quickly because they don't have time. So I think another part of it is just not having enough staff and not having, you know, necessarily the ability to get the right staff who are suited for the position sometimes. Well, yeah, and, and again, when we start 
citing some of these statistics here. I, I, I don't want to paint the picture that everybody that works in these facilities is evil and, and they're you know doing what they can to try to make people's lives miserable. Uh, there have to be some extenuating circumstances, and we certainly heard that during the first wave, didn't we, Jane? But people that are overworked, sometimes working in two different facilities uh, because they need the money, uh, working double shifts as a result of that, and, and like you say, instead of looking after five or six patients, they're looking after 18 or 20 in some cases. Uh, and then there's the nature of the facility itself. I mean, this is, this is not an easy job. We understand that. But again, uh, instead of looking at the management of these facilities, I'm looking at the government who's supposed to have oversight into this and say, why aren't you doing something about this? And I agree. And I think that that definitely you have to look up at the top and say, why are you not fixing these places? We have, you know, we have um, inspection reports that I've seen that are like 200 pages long they don't even get a management order. One would think that if they had that many violations, the government would at least put in a management order. If you have a 200-page report with very serious violations, why are you not charging under, you know, the Provincial Offenses Act? Um, you can't expect the poor PSWs are the only ones often that get charged. I mean, it's really it is actually quite criminal that there that it it ends up being that they're um, paying the price for a system that is broken. Why don't we have a rating system? I mean, because a couple of the cases that the CBC report highlighted here uh, were places that had had a number of incidents that were recorded and, mm -hmm. you know, had been chronicled. But the the people that are putting their loved ones in there don't know any of this stuff. I mean, you know, if, if I'm going to go into a restaurant at noon today, there's going to be a green sign there that says it's okay to eat here. We've just inspected this. Or if there's a red sign, I'm going to the next break. That's it, it, so we got that, and so it, it it increases our comfort level. When it comes to the care of our loved ones, why don't we have the same avenue to follow in something like that? So you know, certainly people can read the reports. They're all public. They are online. They're a bit cryptic. Um, the government did have a rating system. They stopped using it um, a couple of years ago. That doesn't seem to have been updated. So if you go on the Ministry of website, there you will find sort of a, a, a sort of a rating system, but they don't haven't updated it recently. But frankly, the problem is I don't think it matters because if you have 30,000 people waiting for beds in long-term care, um, people in hospital, they're getting pressure to get out. We hear this all the time about the pressure on people to get out of hospital. And so the homes that, you know, you and I probably would look at would say, no, I'm not putting my parent in there. There's no way. Um, people who don't have family, who don't have support systems, are in hospitals. There's a lot of pressure on them to go out and they fill those beds. And so there isn't any um, impetus for the homes, frankly, to change. Well, and we've seen that, and I'm sure that a lot of our listeners are, are nodding their heads right now saying, yeah, when we had to put mom or, or whomever it was in, when, you get what you get. I mean, because you have to go through a system, and you can't just say, hey, I want to go there. That's not necessarily going to happen. You can state a preference, but, you know, especially if you're being transferred from a, a, an acute care from a hospital into one of these facilities, mm -hmm. uh, you go where they tell you to go. In other words, the next available bed is where well, you're going. Well, that actually isn't true. You actually do have a choice. Um, they cannot force you to... Um, take beds in facilities you don't want to go to. You actually get to choose. But the pressure on people to, quote, choose some of these homes is very high. And like I said, many people don't have families. And so when they're told, oh, you know, take this place, they'll do that. Or when the pressure is put on by the hospital in the Lynn, being told things like, well, you know, if you don't choose this, we're going to discharge you to a motel, which happens. Um, you know, what do you do?
Yeah, because I've would i heard stories when we've talked about this previously uh, that, that you've given three choices, and if you throw them down three times, then, well, you know, too bad for you. It's, it's, it's a problematic situation, but it comes down to the number of available beds, doesn't it? That's right. And, and the problem is, is that, yes, you can choose. And, you know, if it's on your list, yes, you have to accept it. But people put homes on the list because they're pressured to. Um, and, you know, the homes that a lot of people want to go to may have, you know, it is there are homes around that have 10-year waiting lists. Problematic. And this report uh, just, I think, underscores what's going on. Jane, I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Jade Vetus, of course, barrister and solicitor for uh, Institutional Advocate and uh, has done some great advocacy work for the elderly and especially the people in long-term care facilities. And we're hoping that the government gets the message when they see reports like this. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.